the identity politics in particular, I think stems from an inability to see the other as a human being instead of seeing the other as a political abstraction, especially when it comes to that particular issue. Theory of enchantment is set up to help recondition human beings uh, and rewire our thinking away from a politically minded approach to conflict and to even, I guess, social organization to a much more magnanimous, abundant way of viewing human life and human relationships. I find identity politics to be actually very much based upon a scarcity model and also on a very materialist model of understanding the world. Whereas theory of enchantment is far more, I would say, psychological, spiritual understanding of, of the world. Chloe Valderay was born in New Orleans to homemaking mother and banker father and grew up in an environment of inquiry and orthodoxy that led her to opening a Pandora's box of curiosity. Through her curiosity, talent and education, Chloe developed a love of art, music and English literature that expanded her worldview and set her on a journey to develop the skills and insights needed to create her Theory of Enchantment educational program. The course is designed through the use of storytelling and pop culture to equip students with the skills necessary to develop a healthy sense of personal empowerment and social well-being. It's also the name of her eponymous podcast. In part one of this two-parter, Chloe discusses her upbringing, growing up with abundance and scarcity, the fusion of inquiry and orthodoxy, the impact of religion, and her education, her love of and desire to explore art, English literature and film. We also cover her insider-outsider dynamic and how her worldview developed and how she ended up with a scholarship at the Wall Street Journal. I hope you enjoy the inquiring mind, the redemptive spirit and the educational storytelling of Chloe Valderay. Chloe, thank you very much for making the time today to be on the podcast. Welcome to the Impossible Network and a big, big shout out and thank you to Arno Michaelis III, who connected us and recommended that we speak to you next. Now, is isn't quite next, it's been a few weeks, but I'm really glad we can make this happen in these interesting times. <laughs> so let's get going. So before we, we start, we always like to delve into childhood and upbringing with our guests. So um, I believe that you were born in New Orleans and grew up there. That's correct. So yes. I'd love you to just talk to us about the impact that uh, of your parental guidance and um, any other sort of peers, mentors, or direction you were given that impacted on you, the direction you've gone in life? Sure. So I guess I'll start with my parents. I grew up in a home that was very theologically rooted, theologically oriented. My father is a man who, it seems, is always in constant pursuit of theological truths or revelation, I guess you could call it. He grew up as a typical Christian, I guess you could say, grew up in a Catholic family, but also had some uh, experiences with Baptist uh, denominations as well. But at some point in his, I, I want to say late teens, early 20s, he found himself questioning some of the uh, theological assumptions of both Catholic and Baptist traditions. And he approached his pastor, who at the time was Baptist, with a desire to sort of dig deeper into this idea that, for example, instead of going to church on Sunday, you know, shouldn't he be going to church on Saturday? Um, and other sort of, he questioned other widely held assumptions that are part and parcel of mainstream Christianity, including observance of Christmas and Easter, including this 
mandate to not eat pork or shellfish, which is in the Torah or the first five books of the Bible, he approached his pastor with these questions and his pastor essentially ignored him. So he decided to, yeah. (laughs) So he decided to pursue these questions on his own and ended up finding a church in the area that observed all all of these things um, in the spirit of Christianity. That must have been quite challenging in a time before search and the internet to build to. You must have read extensively. Yeah, I don't know if it was as challenging as one would think. I think everything is relative, right? Uh-huh. I think we could we could imagine in 2020 that it would be challenging, but it probably wasn't as challenging given what everyone was used to using as a means of discovery uh, and searching uh, prior to the internet being there. But yeah, so this was... I don't even know if I was born at the time that this was happening, (laughs) this internal search was happening. But as you can imagine, I think my father passed down this legacy of inquiry and searching for truth down to his Mm -hmm. children. And that I've carried with me to this day, for better or for worse, because what that does actually is end up opening up Pandora's box. So (laughs) (laughs) so even though I was raised in the... But it's probably quite an interesting box, though. It's a very interesting box. Um, Deep. uh, Very deep, very exhausting, but also very much full of (laughs) gifts, I would say. Um, But it opens up Pandora's box because what what I ended up doing was sort of living quite passionately with this tradition that was passed down to me from my father, but then eventually questioning that tradition itself. So my father passed down both the tradition of orthodoxy and the tradition of questioning. Um, uh-huh. which created a, a bit of a paradox. I've heard you talk about your the, your upbringing, the religious upbringing as a combination of rebelliousness and orthodoxy. Yes. Which is a nice a nice juxtaposition. <laughs> yes. It is it is very interesting to sort of like balance the two um or stand in the balance of the two. So that's that's a, that I would say was a pillar that was a fundamental part of my upbringing. And what about your mother? My mother I think is well, I know my mother is religious, but not in the same sort of inquiring way as my father. I think my mother is less of a questioner. She has more of a devotee spirit. So she has more of the orthodoxy in her than, than the <laughs> okay. inquiring spirit. So I would say my mother has, actually, that's interesting. My mother has more of the orthodoxy. My father has more of a, <laughs> the inquiry, the inquiries. That's interesting. And what about your siblings? I think that this tradition manifested in my siblings in different ways than it manifested in me, naturally. I have two younger sisters that they're 15 years old, they're twins. And I can already see, actually, these two spirits within them. I can see the spirit of orthodoxy in my sister, Sophia, and I can see the spirit of inquiry in my sister, Victoria. Um, both of them have elements of you know, mm-hmm. each of within them, but to varying degrees. And then... My older sister, Gabby, I think has more of the rebellious spirit in her, which obviously comes from inquiry. And then my other younger sister, Julia, who lives in South Korea, is, I would say, by definition, an explorer. So you can you can see how different elements of orthodoxy and inquiry sort of change and shape and take different forms um, within us all. And as for me, I think I uh I think the way I blended orthodoxy and inquiry is to say that I am ultimately attracted to art mm-hmm. and artistry. And I actually always have been. 
it's always my art has always been present in my life. So when I was in elementary school, I was in talented and visual arts. So I had a whole phase where I wanted to be well, where I just wanted to draw. <laughs> I don't want it to well, I know I, I noticed the Dali book behind you. On your oh, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I had this entire phase in my adolescence where I was just very much into visual arts. And then I got into film and screenwriting. So in high school, I went to a contemporary arts school called NOCA in 11th and 12th grade. How'd you spell that? Uh, N-O-C-C-A. It's an acronym for the New Orleans Contemporary Center of the Arts. So like the Fame Academy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's always the analogy I use. Yeah. Um, and it always sucks when people haven't seen the movie because then I don't know another <laughs> analogy to give them. Yeah. I hope they never do a remake. Yeah, I mean, I hope they see the original. Yeah, I think it's it's the only one. It's a, it's a brilliant film. Classic. Yeah, so I went to, there was a school very similar to the one in Fame that I went to that offered students whether they wanted to pursue acting or drawing and painting or film and screenwriting. And I studied film and screenwriting, so the art of storytelling. Mm-hmm. There was also an audio like section of the film track as well, which I regret I didn't pay as much attention to because now I'm sort <laughs> of in the music phase of my artistic expression of my life so so yeah i would say the twin pillars of orthodoxy and, and and inquiry led to a desire for art in my life both in a sort of a creative context so literally creating art but also in a it, it led to a deep interest in english literature which i also consider mm-hmm. to be a form of art um and english literature my interest in english literature i would say has been the constant artistic medium that i've been interested in all my life so as you were growing up, and you, at what age did you start this, uh, this school, NOCA? NOCA? 16 years old. I was 16. So before that, how was your worldview developing? Presumably with your, I mean, with your father's perspective on the world, clearly and was in affecting your, your own sort of personal perspective. But what was life like in those formative years as you were growing up in terms of things like play, um, your sense of identity, sense of self-belief? So I think because of the constant of art in my life, I was allowed to play in that sense, right? Uh-huh. Because I was always playing when I was drawing, essentially, and trying to create. I was always playing when I was immersed in fiction and in novels and sort of uh, my imaginative side was always being conditioned by virtue of the fact that I was constantly reading in both high school and elementary school, I was always in gifted in reading, gifted classes for reading in English literature. So that was sort of a, a class in which I was able to play and imagine and be sort of expansive. At the same time, however, I lived a life that I could characterize as insider-outsider because of the religious tradition that I grew up in. So, which which had both its... its uh, challenges and its opportunities. I only really became mindful of the opportunities in retrospect, though. (laughs) Um, The challenge of, as you can imagine, living in New Orleans, a city that is, that prizes itself on its cuisine, uh, which is primarily, you know, sees shellfish as staple to its diet, as someone who grew up not eating shellfish, you know, at all, in any way, shape or form, um, that created an insider-outsider dynamic with the city of New Orleans. As someone who would see their peers, obviously, always. I can imagine, yeah. uh, Not only 
partaking of that cuisine, but from a religious perspective, you know, celebrating Christmas and Easter. And I would always be like taken out of school for the, when there would, there would be functions and parties to celebrate Christmas and Easter. How did you, I mean, that's the type of thing as a young child without a strong spirit, it could lead to isolationism or, or isolation and bullying and some form of sort of persecution because you're seen as different. How did you manage that relationship with your peers? So I was never actually bullied for that, weirdly enough. Uh, <laughs> people always had questions, actually. And it wasn't that my peers had questions. It was that the teachers had questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Did they not know your father? They did not know my father. They knew oh. my mother because my mother was, was the one who was, who was more, you know, always picking us up from school and stuff like that. Um, always on the campus, as it were. But they were very intrigued. By the, the prospect of it all. And so at a very early age, I actually formed mature relationships with adults, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, as a result of this upbringing, because adults would always have questions. I remember in first grade, like first grade teachers pulling me in to ask me about this experience that I had. At six years old, I remember it. I remember just talking to my to my teacher in a way that was more advanced, I feel like, for for my peers. I also think that at the same time, you know, in elementary school for the first, I want to say four grades, so kindergarten to third grade, I was in a predominantly African-American school. And I think African-Americans, we are deeply spiritual people. And so there was a lot of interest actually from a spiritual perspective in what exactly was going on (laughs) in my life. And so there was more spiritual intrigue in that experience than there was, you know, outright shock or condemnation for, for what was, you know, taking place. Um, and also there's a spiritual tr- tradition in the sense that in first grade, some of the first assignments I had was to memorize poetry by famous African-American poets. I would say that that was also extremely formative for me. Again, in retrospect, I've only recently realized how deeply formative that was and how deeply that shaped my psyche and my conception of the world as operating on a spiritual landscape far more than it did in a a material sense. It's funny when you talk about memorizing uh, poetry. I remember at school, (laughs) how different (laughs) in in Scotland. In Scotland, it was the war poets. So Secrets of Soon and Wilfred Owen. So I look back and I think, why were we forced to memorize, wrote memorization of war poems of all things? You know, how, how bizarre. Why not Robert Burns or Robert Louis Stevenson or even some of Shakespeare's sonnets? You know, it's bizarre. That um, is interesting. And it's, it's, and it's strange how they stick with you. Yeah. You know, I wish I, I, wish I could sort of quote um, Shakespeare and all the books I, and all the plays that I had to read and regurgitate. I can't remember anything, trying to, little bits from Hamlet and Macbeth, but I can certainly remember the war poems. Yeah. So how about you with the African-American poetry? Are you still? Yes, still, I still remember. I yeah. still remember the what I think is the first poem I was first forced <laughs> to memorize, which was about Harriet Tubman. That meant that a very early story that shaped my, my childhood was the story of going from slavery to freedom uh-huh. in a, not just in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. So that shaped my, you know, worldview as a result subconsciously, because, you know, my educational experience was grounded in that particular archetype. Right. 
which I think is ultimately a gift. And I'm very grateful and fortunate to have received that. It's funny. I, I mean, I'm jumping ahead slightly because one of the things when I, I've listened to you being interviewed and obviously I and heard you when you did your interview with um, Arno and the way you just described that, sort of the, the journey from slavery to freedom, a lot of what seems to define, if I'm correct, what you do is transformation. Mm-hmm. You're looking at transformation, guiding transformation to help, as you said, the human spirit transform from probably one state to another. And it's already coming out in just, in, in just the way that you talk about your upbringing and the nature of that sort of standing, the balance between inquiry and uh, orthodoxy, though that's more balance rather than transformation. But it's, it's interesting. So anyway, so let's carry on. Are there any other defining or seminal moments in your upbringing that resonate with you that you feel had a defining impact on your character or on the journey? Defining moments? Or experience or, mem- or memories or individuals even. So I would say, you know, my English literature teachers have always been steadfast in in guiding my educational growth. So Mona Herbert was my fourth grade English literature teacher. I actually don't remember what we read. (laughs) I just remember Mm -hmm. her being a character and a force for, for discovering the wonder of the world through literature. And also Gail Gill, who was my, who was the most important English literature teacher that I had in both 10th and 11th grade. And I, <laughs> she really introduced us to the Western canon. So on her door, there were, I think there were like four rules that you were to uh, use to guide your life. And they were all taken from the character of Odysseus. So, <laughs> so, so that was sort of how I was like introduced to her, to her class and to the world of, of you know, ancient Greek and Roman literature. Um, and of course, you know, there were other pieces that we read, including Shakespeare, but she really sort of like made those works come alive and made them relevant to our lives in, the, in a contemporary sense. So I'd say that was important. I'd also say like my experience of going to church um, was super important because the church I attended was very, in retrospect, sort of dogmatic, but at the time seemed to be far more intellectually rigorous than other experiences of church that I had heard my peers were having, um, if they were having that, it at all. Was that Seventh-day Adventist? So it's, I like to say it's similar to Seventh-day Adventist. It's uh, actually okay. non-denominational. It's, uh-huh. it's actually cut from Protestant cloth, but, yeah. <laughs> but the church I know exactly where you're coming from. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> but the church did not self-identify as Protestant. Okay. Yeah. Um, which is such a Protestant thing to do. Uh-huh. Um, but, <laughs> but, Still very much intellectually rigorous, uh, very much interested in sort of like less emotional take uh, or approach to worship than uh, intellectual analytical approach to worship. Um, I also should say I grew up like not only did I grow up not celebrating Christmas, I grew up on Christmas Day. The tradition in our family was to go into the living room and read the Council of Nicaea documents (laughs) from from, you know, Constantine. And so which meant that my worldview at a very young age was ironically both orthodox and cosmopolitan because it made me realize, well, it just made me realize that the fact of the past and the presence of the past in everyday life and the fact that the past has shaped, you know, my contemporary existence. And I don't think that people at the age of 10 were studying 
seriously like the impact of Alexander the Great or <laughs> or even, you know, had that name in their vocabulary. Certainly not in contemporary culture. It must be one of the few. Yeah. So 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 that was hugely formative and hugely impactful in shaping the way I think about the world today. The past always looms large in my yeah. understanding of, you know, the contemporary world. No, it's a it's a trait that more individuals should embrace. I'm sure we'll come and talk about that when we talk about education. Sure. But you've talked a bit about education. We always like to ask about, oh, sorry, one other question, two other questions quickly. One, what what were your parents' occupations and uh, mother and father? We also like to ask the question, did you live with abundance or scarcity? Um, (laughs) So my mother was a homemaker and my father was a banker. Uh Uh-huh. So did I live with, so I thought that that question was going to be about the present, not the past. No, no, it's about the past. In in terms of memories, I mean, it's, I mean, it could, it could be a combination of both. You might be straddling both in in different facets of your life. It sounds like from an educational and spiritual standpoint, it was very abundant. Yeah, I would say it was abundant, though I may not have perceived it as such always at the time. Scarcity of of shrimp and shellfish. (laughs) I think, so the insider-outsider dynamic mm-hmm. makes someone, forces someone to feel what it's like to be an outsider. And thus there is a scarcity in that uh, relationship. But I do think that ironically, the ability to feel that, or the experience of feeling that connects you with others because it, now you understand how others feel when they feel like they don't belong. So even even something that, um, comes from a scarcity mindset can, when seen through a different lens, actually be a source of abundance. So in that sense, yeah, I think, yeah, as anyone, as any human being experiences, I definitely experienced both scarcity and abundance in my upbringing in, in different ways. Okay. You attended a school I saw on LinkedIn, Benjamin Franklin High School for Gifted Children. That obviously propelled you further and brought you to or led you to New York. And I read the founders had a vision about the future of American educational institutions and that it was starting a revolution. Can you just give us a sense of what that experience was like? Yes. So Benjamin Franklin is to this day still the number one high school in Louisiana. So if you say in New Orleans that you go to Franklin, people are like, whoa, you're really smart. Oh, I can't believe it, you know. <laughs> so, so to get into Franklin was really like a, an accomplishment. Um, in terms of the experience, it was very, very competitive, very, very uh, rigorous in terms of just like you're operating on another level when it comes to competing with your peers. <laughs> so I don't know the percentage of people in my graduating class who went to Ivy Leagues, but I just remember it being so like, you know, uh, like, wow. Because they, they announced at the end of the, of the graduating classes term, like, you know, who's going to like Harvard and Yale and Princeton and all these great schools. So I just remember being enamored by that, uh, by seeing how many, how many of my peers we're doing that. How how many of my peers did amazing on the SATs? You know, so there was this very exciting but almost daunting sort of like value put on education and put on like sort of really really scoring high and really um, competing in an intellectually and academically rigorous way, um, which I think was good. You know, it's it refines you. It forces you to sort of like 
discipline yourself in order to be competitive. I would also say that the students were much more civically minded than the average student in high school. Students were often involved. Most, I would say most students in my class were involved in multiple things. So various clubs, intramural activities, various sports activities. Maybe they were a part of, you know, uh, political, politically active clubs as well, cultural clubs. So there's a lot of opportunity for students to be involved in things outside of academics, which was a really good balance so that students were able to have a full life as a result. And that was an experience that I don't think is so prominent in other schools. Those extracurricular activities are not necessarily offered in other schools. And just like the, how, like the number of choices um, that one could really have access to was something to be, to be marveled at. What else about Franklin was interesting? I mean, I don't know. It's weird because when you're in it and you're, you're in adolescence or you're in this weird phase where you're transitioning from adolescence to adulthood and like, you know, you're going through the hormonal changes and it's very, it's not often that I think that one is present. So I wasn't necessarily present in my experience at Franklin all the time, um, except for in English lit class. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know that I was present in English literature. Um, class because I remember it and I remember the impact that it had on me. But I don't, I can't say that I was necessarily present for, or mostly present for the rest of it. So I, I don't necessarily remember everything that it bequeathed to me. So on the, on the site, the logo for the, the school, there's the value, what I perceive to be the values of honor, service, justice, and wisdom. How did those manifest or how were they imparted to you by the teachers and the institution itself? Because they must stand by those. I do think that when it, come, when it came to service, that a lot of my peers were, if I remember correctly, involved in, in voluntary work, volunteering work. Um, and I do think that that was a spirit that, again, because of the choices of extracurricular activities that were offered to us, that was something that was readily available. Um, and encouraged, actually, like as a civic duty. And so that was important. Um, in terms of, what were the other three? Honor, justice, and wisdom. So in terms of wisdom, I remember <laughs> arguing with my political science teacher, um, Mr. McNabb, in 10th grade, I think it was. But he was so grateful that I was so invested <laughs> in the class as opposed to people who are just trying to get the grade and get through you know to the next class and so I do remember that in retrospect that 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 being sort of a a manifestation of honor because it didn't matter it it mattered less that I disagreed with him than the fact that I was engaged and that this is important to me and so I think that that's a way in which honor was sort of imbued in you yeah held in high esteem and also that's I think that's also a form of wisdom as well, um, to be able to, to hold multiple truths at once. So if, if you were so immersed in, in English literature at that period in your life, and also with a, a deep love of art, what stopped you from going to an Ivy League school to study English literature or even sort of, um, something more artistically, sort of the history of art? And yet you decide you ended up getting a scholarship or, or what was a fellowship um, at the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, that's such a great question. I honestly did not translate my love of English literature into a signal that it could have been a profession. <laughs> oh. So what were your ambitions at that point? Uh, I'm trying to remember what my ambitions were at that point. I think that 
despite my love of art and despite my love of English literature, I was actually more enmeshed in the pillar of orthodoxy at the time, which manifested itself theologically and politically. And I did not know this, but this meant that a clash was coming very soon. (laughs) Um, And the clash happened uh, in college later. But as I was tracking along in, in high school, I did not realize that this burgeoning development of love and passion for English literature was going to create um, a sort of rude awakening <laughs> in, both the, in both the figurative sense and in the spiritual sense, because the orthodoxy that I grew up with wasn't necessarily too keen on the uh, expansiveness that English literature brings with it. And I get that, you know, that's, that's what orthodoxy is by definition. But yeah, I would say as a result, I was much more interested in political, political matters in high school than I was in art, even though I was simultaneously been drawn to a lot of the figures that Gail Gill had taught us about and had forced us to memorize. So that's probably why I didn't pursue. <laughs> but with that interest in, in politics, political science would have been a natural stepping stone. To what? Uh, to go to um, a school whether it be an Ivy League school or just to study political science rather than to go on the path that you took? I did initially major in film and screenwriting, so... Oh, okay, right. <laughs> so there's there's the art there, you know, manifesting oh, okay. itself. Right. In the back of my mind, constantly, you know, pushing me to toward that direction. So, yeah, but I actually didn't need to think to go to an Ivy League, number one, because I didn't think I could afford it. And number two, because I scored really well, actually, in English literature on the ACTs, but I didn't score nearly enough on, you know, math and other subjects to, to, to really even think to apply to an Ivy League. And also, I think I was far too dogmatic in my views to write a, I'm thinking about this now, I, I think I was far too dogmatic to write a compelling essay to get into. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. There's, you know, there's no way of knowing these things. But I really didn't even attempt it. So... So how did you how did you uh, land that fellowship? Is it Tikva? Yes. So, so first it was Bartley. First it was the Bartley uh-huh. Fellowship, um, which is part of the Wall Street Journal's program, um, and then it was a Tikva. So I switched majors from film to international studies, and during that time I ended up publishing, writing for different papers, primarily focused on Israel. But I sort of developed actually a bit of a name for myself as a result of that. And one time, Brett Stevens, formerly of the Wall Street Journal, now the New York Times, came to New Orleans to give a talk about Israel. I went to this talk. I walked up to him and I said, I thought your talk was really good. (laughs) And he gave me his card and he said to be in touch. And I sent him various articles uh, that I had written to get his feedback. Uh, and sometimes he would actually respond and give, give me his feedback. And then in 2014, I wrote a piece in Tablet Magazine that kind of went viral overnight. And I sent it to him. And he said that you should apply for the Bartley Fellowship <laughs> at the Wall Street Journal. So I did. It was actually quite exciting because one of my friends was also applying at the same time. We, I had a last minute writing assignment that he gave me uh, that I had a week to work on to try to get in. And I got in and that's how I got the Bartley Fellowship. And then, so the Bartley Fellowship is only for three months, but then Brett and I came up with this idea to really study the Israel scene in a way that was sort of like systematic and uh, measured. 
And he approached the Tikva Fund to sponsor that. So I could remain at the Wall Street Journal for the next nine months to really develop that. And um, I ended up studying at the Tikva Fund for a week. I studied Jewish philosophy at the Tikva Fund for a week. So I also had a working relationship with them as well. So that's how I ended up being able to extend my time at the journal and do this deep dive into into, uh, the research that I did. Two questions. What was the piece that went viral before that? So it was a piece, (laughs) the more my dogmatic years, it was a piece called to Students for Justice in Palestine, a letter from an angry black woman. So SJP, as they call themselves, is an anti-Israel uh, student student group on college campuses. And as someone who had a pro-Israel student group, uh, you know, we we're sort of always like having our factions with each other, warring with each other on campus, seeing who could throw the most, who could throw the best, you know, events. They would often protest our events and stage walkouts. That we, we felt at the time that the campus was sort of the battleground for the conversation on Israel. And they had done something in New Orleans that I found really, oh, they had compared themselves to the civil rights leaders. And my whole point in that letter was to actually correct the record and to demonstrate that a lot of civil rights leaders from Dr. King to Rosa Parks actually were self defined Zionists and actually, especially like Rosa Parks specifically signed a letter disavowing a lot of the anti-Israel boycotts later on in her life. So this was what the piece was about. And it went viral overnight. And um, yeah, so I sent it to Brett. He was like, you should apply for this, for this fellowship. So. And then the, the work that you did for the subsequent nine months, how do you, how do you describe that? And what did it comprise of? That was the catalyst for theory of enchantment. Uh, this was a, a 82-page thesis on the topic of Israel and millennials in terms of uh, cultivating affinity for Israel among millennials. And my initial question I was trying to solve, which which animated my changing of my major in college, actually, was how to combat anti-Semitism. But that question actually changed to how to get people to learn how to love, which was a different question. Because when you're talking about like, how do you cultivate affinity for something among a particular cohort of people? The essence of the question is actually, how do you get a people or a person to love something? So that actually shifted my perspective into thinking about what is the science or psychology of love? How do we, why do we love the things we love? And then I started focusing on on pop culture because pop culture shows us everything that we love. Um, and I started to try to ask the question of like, like, what is it about Nike? What is it about Beyonce? What is it about Disney? What is it about these influencers and companies that we gravitate toward? And why do we gravitate toward them continuously, both as fans and as consumers? Is there a psychology embedded deeply within the, their branding Story. that speaks to us? And the common denominator that I discovered was that they all create content in which their audience sees themselves and their potential reflected mm-hmm. in the content. And that's it. Would you say the power story? Yes, but it's a very particular story. Uh-huh. It's a very particular kind of story that's being told. And the story is the story of our own potential. So the idea mm-hmm. is that if you buy this Nike hat, if you buy this Nike shoe, you'll be able to just do it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. By witnessing a character in a Disney movie go from you know, sort of despondent and uh, full of despair to triumphant, 
and successful is it's just a reflection of what is possible for you right so mm-hmm. it's a it is storytelling but it's a very particular kind of story it's a very redemptive kind of storytelling that we gravitate but isn't, towards. isn't it isn't it the stories that have been told through the millennia of of hope and the possibility of the the human character uh, through endeavor and sacrifice and hard work and you know whether cross-cultural there are similarities across all these stories yes i would just say that there's a difference between this kind of story and a story that (laughs) dostoevsky might tell right yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah or the brothers grim Right. It's totally cross-cultural, but it is a yeah. very specific kind of story um, that we gravitate toward. Uh, I should also uh, go back a little bit and say that a very, like, I should define the moment that the, the clash happened yes, between orthodoxy and inquiry. So the clash happened in college, senior year in college. Of course, this would be the class that it happened to, to happen in. Uh, I was in a class called Anthropology of Re- Religion, Magic, and Witchcraft, which is just <laughs> a great class. <laughs> a great class. <laughs> yeah. um, so we're studying like the religions of the world, everything from Christianity to voodoo practices in Brazil, you know, um, really fascinating stuff. And so that in and of itself was like rocking my world <laughs> because up until this point, I had dogmatically believed that the only truth was to be found in the, you know, the way I grew up and the way I was raised. And so this was already rocking my world. And to add insult to injury, the professor was sort of an agnostic liberal who I had painted, I had put into this box of other and um, totally incapable of like imagining the wonders of the divine. And one time we had to watch this documentary called Jesus Camp. I think that's the name of it, which isn't, which doesn't paint a particular evangelical sect of Christians in a positive light. And so the next day, I remember one of our, one of the other students in the classroom who herself was atheist came in and just sort of like railed against the people in the documentary. And then this liberal agnostic professor who I had painted into a box goes on to defend the people in the documentary and say that if you, you, you are totally missing the point of this class, if you have reduced what has happened or what they have been practicing, both the good, the bad, and the ugly, to just mindless, you know, dogmatism. Like, you don't understand the human condition if you are reducing this. And so in that moment, it, like, everything shattered. My entire worldview shattered. It was like, it actually sent me into a very deep depression because it was cognitive dissonance. It didn't make any sense. Yeah. How could it be that this person that I had you know, cast off as totally incapable of um, feeling something akin to compassion for the divine. How could it be that this person would articulate something that actually is godlike? <laughs> so that totally like uh, shattered my worldview. But I think that was the beginning of what has been a journey to to like the theory of enchantment and some of the things I've been working on. So for people that might not be familiar with the theory of enchantment. I think there's a, first of all, this is obviously the podcast for it, but it's also your business. And it's a, what I believe to be a curriculum of change or for change that's grounded in three principles uh, that are one, that we're all human and not political distractions, that anything, any time that we offer criticism, it should be to uplift. And thirdly, to root everything that we do in compassion and love. Is that a fair articulation of the three principles? And if 
you could maybe expand on them and explain about how the curriculum is embraced by institutions and, and educators and, and the work you're doing with it. Sure. So the curriculum, which as you uh, accurately described, is called the theory of enchantment. And the theory of enchantment, and as I was describing, comes out of this research that I did at the Wall Street Journal. Because the moment that I discover that the reason why we love the things we love is because it's reflecting to us our potential is the moment I began to synthesize a lot of the different things that had happened in my life. Both the paradox of living in the world of orthodoxy and inquiry, the experience of that clash slash crash that happened Mm -hmm. uh, in senior year in college. It really sort of like signaled to me the fact of the human condition, which is both fragile, frail, but also increasingly redemptive. And so the question became, so how can we begin to discuss difficult issues, challenging issues that really are difficult to, to solve within a framework that is enchanting. And the reason why I picked the term enchant- enchantment was because at the time of completing the research, I read a book by Guy Kawasaki, the former marketing director of Apple, oh, yeah. Yeah. wrote a book called Enchantment. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talked about how this was sort of like animating a lot of how Steve Jobs saw the world. Um, and he defined enchantment as the process by which you delight someone with an idea, a product, or a service. And I thought that this is precisely the feeling that we have when we watch a Disney movie. It's the feeling of enchantment because we're seeing, we're witnessing our potential. And so after I wrapped up this paper, I worked for a nonprofit for two years and I developed a framework rooted in the thesis. And so the framework was based upon three principles, three principles that you just articulated. Remember that we are human beings, not political abstractions criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down, never to destroy, root everything you do in love and compassion. And so I, I lectured on that for two years in college campuses. Can I ask a question? Sure. The journey to arriving at those three principles couldn't have been a moment of an epiphany of like, here they are. It must have been through your own inquiry and examination. What was that timeline like to get to that? fuzzy. <laughs> I don't quite remember the moment it crystallized. I just, because I wasn't necessarily giving that lecture out the gate, right? Uh-huh. But I just, I think it was just after a series of trying to come up with a 45-minute speech that synthesized all my ideas about enchantment, and also realizing the bigger impact of reading literature on my life, as opposed to reading polemical works, which can be, you know, very analytical, but also like kind of miss the point. Maya Angelou has this quote where she says, you can know the facts and have the facts totally be different from the truth. And I think that's how I I find a lot of polemical works. They're they're like factual, but they're not necessarily containing the truth, which is much, which can be much more murkier than just the dry facts. So I can't say that I know (laughs) explicitly when I came up with these principles, but it was sort of the product of an amalgamation, of realizing the amalgamation of everything that had happened in my life prior to it, prior to it crystallizing. But, you know, I began to give this 45-minute talk about this idea of enchantment with these principles. And I said, okay, we're going to discuss difficult ideas. We're going to discuss these really Palestinian conflicts. We're going to discuss this political uh, disagreement that you have with each other on college campuses. But we're going to discuss it using this framework to, to guide our discussions. So automatically now 
the walls are brought down. Your assumptions that are rooted in bitterness and anger and frustration are sort of tamed for a while because now we have agreed mutually that we're going to enter into this discussion using these guideposts to shape our discussion and to shape the way we behave with one another, even as we disagree with one another. Uh, And that totally changed the tone and tenor of these conversations on campus. And increasingly, I would get this response from (laughs) a lot of people that these principles don't just apply to this topic. They apply to everything. They apply to interpersonal conflict. They apply to, you know, um, someone cuts you off in the middle of the street. Like, how do you absorb and deal with that in a healthy, holistic way? And one person said at one of my talks that you should develop a full curriculum, a full program for this, because this would be good for schools. This could be good for, you know, the boardroom, various other uh, places and spaces. And so I gave it some thought. And after working for this nonprofit for two years, I decided to go independent and create my own LLC called Theory of Enchantment and really set out to create this curriculum. And now the curriculum for schools, at least, is 25 lessons, 14-week program. Every lesson and every principle is taught using pop culture, which is really the beauty of the curriculum and the, and the, the fun of the curriculum. You know, we, we blend ancient truths with contemporary manifestations of those truths. Because if you believe that certain concepts are timeless, then you should expect to find them in contemporary form. So, for example, we teach Stoicism. So we teach Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus but we teach them in conversation with the Lion King because the Lion King is actually an incredible example of Simba learning Stoic uh-huh. principles and learning yeah. to apply them to his life. And in terms of like how it's been, so, so I've had Theory of Enchantment for a year now. As you can imagine with startup world, <laughs> startup yeah. life, it's always a constant challenge. And, um, you know, I've, I've learned so much because, for example, getting into schools is very difficult. Schools are often bureaucratic beasts that, uh, you know, a school in one district might have certain stakeholders that you need to court to get into the school and a school in another district might have a totally different set of stakeholders. And so it's really been a, a, a learning curve to try to figure out how to how to get into those schools. Just just um, as you were talking, I don't know why I didn't think about this when I was researching it. We interviewed a guy called Stephen Heck. He runs an organization called Million Peacemakers. Okay. And they they have a a conflict resolution model called Nonflict and a book they've written around it. And they are working in communities around the world where there's conflict exists and they use this four-step process or three-step process to break down conflict using this non-flict approach. And anyone can learn it really quickly. And it uses the very much the same principles that you do. And I think I should connect you to Stephen. Yeah, that'd be great. I love that. Because he's part of an organization, a bigger organization I'd never heard of called the YPO, the Young Presidents Organization. There's thousands of chapters around the world. And they're going, they're working with um, the Vatican on this to get into communities where obviously the priests can are often mediators in conflict resolution areas. They're working in Ireland between Catholics and Protestants. They're working in Asia, in Myanmar, an incredible network. And I think it would be useful for him to be aware of what you're doing and he might be able to open doors for you as well. Yeah, that would be awesome. Thank you. And he's, he's a great guy, based in Toronto, but he's here a lot. He's very connected to the United Nations as well. And I think that's something probably, I don't know if you've got good ins with the UN. Not really, no. I don't have any uh, 
connections there. But mm-hmm. um, no, I would love to be connected. That sounds like okay. It. I'll do that because that could open some doors. All right. Okay. So let's let's move on. Unless there was something else you were going to add there, just about the sort of the challenges. Oh, I was just going to say that there are very different, various different verticals I'm trying to get into. So schools, but also corporations when it comes to professional development training. Um, I Last year, I trained the civil rights department of the FAA in an eight-hour theory of enchantment training. So I'm looking to really offer that uh, to other organizations, both companies and government agencies. So theory of enchantment can be packaged in multiple formats and go to multiple different cohorts as a result. It would be very interesting to see if you could get into West Point. Oh, that'd be cool. <laughs> that would be, a, I'd love to be, a. that'd be fascinating. If you know anyone there, let me know, hit me up. Well, we know Joshua Spodek, another guest, he went in there and did his leadership in the environment training for them, for a couple of their leading coaches there. So I could ask Josh. Yeah. yeah. I would love to teach okay. at West Point. That'd be a, yeah. so fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. We'll leave that one with us. All right. So we're living in very troubled times at the moment where um, there's obviously many we've got, <laughs> leaving aside the, the COVID-19 issue we're dealing with right now, but we've got gross economic inequality, identity politics, uh, social media distractions tearing us apart from our and our, our attention from more important things to trivi- trivia. Um Amongst all these other issues that are threatening what, say, is the fabric of society, how could you imagine using your curriculum to try and address some of these these larger issues by encouraging more empathy and, and connection and understanding, which seems to be, to me, to be at the heart of what your curriculum is? Yes, and I think it's also the lack thereof is at the heart of a lot of our social problems, especially like lack of, uh, the identity politics in particular, I think stems from an inability to see the other as a human being instead of seeing the other as a political abstraction. And especially when it comes to that particular issue, theory of enchantment is set up to help recondition human beings uh, and rewire our thinking away from a politically minded approach to conflict and to even, I guess, social organization a much more magnanimous, abundant way of viewing human life and human relationships. I find identity politics to be actually very much based upon a scarcity model of Mm -hmm. understanding the world, uh, and also on a very materialist model of understanding the world, whereas theory of enchantment is far more, I would say, psychological, spiritual understanding of, of the world and understanding of that perception is reality. So just to take a very quick example, Um, If someone is going through a difficult time, let's say someone has just gone through a bad breakup and is trying to learn how to cope with the world post that breakup, I think that the theory of enchantment, a lot of the values of the theory of enchantment would impart upon this person to learn that sorrow comes with gifts. Um, In addition to being very difficult to uh, go through. Sorrow also teaches us many things and so- sorrow also brings its gifts to us. And the sense that I described earlier, this is that sorrow connects us to one another's experiencing sorrow enables us to understand what it's like for another person to feel sorrowful and thus feel empathy toward that person. Because theory of enchantment teaches stoicism for a person who has just gone through, through a bad breakup, you can also learn how to 
and this is something that I'm learning every day, really, or trying to learn every day, is, is how to have a relationship with reality that is a dance as opposed to a form of resistance. Mm-hmm. That's so funny. It's so funny that you use that term, dance. We interviewed, uh, uh, this week's drop is Lorna Davis, who was uh, CEO of um, Danone, who took them through a B Corp certification. And she used this phrase that life is a dance between love and power. Mm. We're all seeking power, but love, you cannot have effective power without love. And and she's got this lovely, I, I listened to the episode and she explains it a lot better than I could. But as you were saying that, that dance, it is, it's totally what she, how she approaches life. That's awesome. So dance is like part of my spiritual practice, personally. Mm. So I've used dance as a metaphor for a lot of things. And like music is very much a part of like how I, like the, the experience of music, the experience of going to a club and, and, and witnessing a powerful DJ really like affects the audience has shaped the way I view the world, as a, especially as a metaphor. So yeah, just the ability to dance with reality as opposed to resisting reality and to be open to everything that is unfolding, which isn't to say to suppress emotion, right? I don't think stoicism is about suppressing emotion. I think stoicism is about going through the emotion, experiencing the emotion, experiencing both the tragedy and the gifts of the emotions, but not letting the emotions control you and not overcompensating for the emotions, which is the source of so much conflict in life. It's overcompensating for whether it's imperfection, overcompensating for the fact of your mortality, overcompensating for the fact that you have to deal with difficult emotions. So breathing through, dancing with and through the emotions, as opposed to resisting those emotions, is something that very can impart. It's very consistent with um, the Persian poet Rumi ah, yes. and his perspective on balance and, and, and how you have to see the world and the good and the bad and experience both. There's so many, I mean, ancient wisdoms and this crossover between that and Stoicism and what you're talking about. Definitely, yeah. I actually yeah. have a book of Rumi's poems that I really need to read, but it's just sitting there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there you go. T- time to get it out. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. This might be the time, okay. actually. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Yeah, I think we have to look at things in that with that perspective in, in what we're dealing with today, because we get drawn into the fear and this the the panic and the terror that's creating chaos. We'll leave part one there. Come back tomorrow for part two. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.